So I think imposter syndrome is always in our heads, especially as women, especially women in the law in these careers that are, you know, we get a certificate and they're like, now you are given permission to practice. No one gave me permission to be a professor. Like I have to give myself permission. We have to give ourselves permission to be on boards, to be pushing ourselves forward the way I have. So yeah, imposter syndrome is always in my head and it's just my job to quiet it. In today's episode, we speak to Sarah Feingold, a Brooklyn-based startup attorney who holds the title of the first lawyer and general counsel at Etsy and Room. We discuss the intersections of the world of art and law and how you can learn to create opportunities for yourself where it never existed to propel your career forward, just like how Sarah did. Tune in to hear about how Sarah pitched her way into being the first attorney at Etsy, knocked on doors to embark on a teaching career, as well as exploring playwriting and theatre through Dirty Legal Secrets, a play based on true startup lawyer stories. Enjoy! Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hello, Sarah, and welcome to the Explore This podcast. Always love having a fellow Sarah on the pod with us today. Thanks for having me. And you're dulling in all the way from New York City, I believe? Yes, Brooklyn, New York. Hello, friends. All right, there you go. Sarah, you describe yourself as someone who is born an artist and someone who decided that the best way to protect creative folks like yourself was to go to law school. So let's dive right in from there. When and how did you first discover your artistic inclination? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I don't know if anyone else listening considers themselves an artist, but for me personally, I have been creating art for as long as I can remember. So I first considered myself an artist when I found the word artist. Um, and I just called myself that, you know, from doodling with crayons to like making random stuff out of trash. So that started from a really young age. And what kind of discoveries has that brought you? Well, I think what's interesting about being an artist is you can figure out what works and what is a complete and utter disaster very quickly visually. And so you learn things and you can see them. Um, and you can see your progression, which I think actually applies to the law a lot because sometimes with the law, you're not really sure how things are going um, and you can't really see your errors until much farther down the road. But with art, you kind of learn how to fail and you can see your failures. That's really interesting that you pointed it out because I would think that it's quite the contrary where, where people might think that law might be a little bit more black and white, where else with art, you have a little bit more artistic and creative freedom. Maybe. I mean, I think that there's a lot of creativity in the law. And I think that the law isn't necessarily black and white. And I think that's what lawyers do on a daily basis is try to carve out the gray and try to make convincing arguments either way. All right. So that brings us nicely into the next question about what brought you to law school? What brought me to law school? So it all starts with the art. And I was really curious about what aspects of art were protected. If I made something, how could I prevent people from copying it? You know, I, I worked so hard and had so many failures. I finally have some sort of success and I think it's going to do well. How can I protect it? And that started me thinking about intellectual property, copyrights, trademarks, contracts, trade secrets, all sorts of things like that. And I took a business law class when I was in undergrad. And then I thought, oh, I think I should be a lawyer. So uh, then law school. 
Were you already making jewelry by then? Or how oh, yeah. in parallel was that? <laughs> I've been making jewelry since I was 12 years old. I took my first metal smithing class when I was 12 years old. And um, in college, and actually I chose my law school by its metal smithing program, um, I was making jewelry while I was in college as well. Mm, so you had actually quite a lot going on. Like even in law school, you were still, you know, you're still maintaining your creative pursuits. You didn't let the world of law envelop you in case studies and judgments uh-huh. and all of that. No, 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 no. Um, I'm a creative person and I like to balance myself out by trying to do something creative at least a couple times a week, if not every day and creating something. I'd like to say when I was in law school, people thought it was a little unusual that I kept going to the metalsmithing studio and I was taking metalsmithing classes. But I say, you know, some people like to cook and some people like to go to the gym. I like to make things. This is my outlet. This is my way of really grounding myself. Mm. I personally find it really refreshing for myself and Sarah coming from private practice, we were in a world of law and litigation. And you actually were in private practice as well. You were there for a few years, I believe. How was that experience? And did you find that you were still able to maintain your love for jewelry and the arts? Or was it very consuming and you found it difficult to juggle all of the above? We all prioritize things. We only have so many hours in a day. Um, Some of us choose to sleep. Some of us choose to work all the time, all day long. That's not healthy for me. It was healthy for me to carve out moments in my day, moments in my week, you know, sometimes, you know, month, however often I could to continue my creative journey. So even when I was in private practice, I was always trying to prioritize my time. When people say like, I don't have time, I don't think that's necessarily true. You're just not prioritizing what someone is telling you to do, right? Like there's just not enough time in the world to do everything. But you can look at yourself personally and decide, how am I going to spend my time? And maybe I would be on partnership track at Bill Farm if I would have prioritized differently. Or maybe I would be sleeping and not have a job if I prioritize things differently. Mm, You left the private practice after a few years. Why did you decide to leave? And did you know that from the start when you went in? Or did you, you know, allow yourself some time to decide? So I was in private practice and I was selling my jewelry on this brand new website that you might have heard called Etsy. And I was reading the policies like a lawyer should do when you're posting things online. Um, and I had some ideas. So I contacted Etsy's customer service who put me in touch with their CEO and founder. We got on the phone and I started giving some like maybe legal advice. I don't know. Where's the line? But I was giving some ideas. And um, when I hung up the phone, I realized that Etsy didn't have an in-house attorney, but I thought that they needed one. And they thought that they might need someone with my expertise. I know know metalsmithing. I know jewelry. I know the creative community. So I flew myself to New York City and I called the founder back and I said, I'm coming down to be an to interview to be your in-house attorney. You need an in-house attorney. I will take all these worries off your plate. I will add value and you need it to be me. There wasn't a plan that, oh, I'm going to be at a law firm for X amount of time and then I'm going to go in-house. It was, I have a good job at a law firm. I'm learning a lot. But then I had this idea that maybe this amazing company could use someone like me and I made it happen. If you want to be in-house at a company, know the company, know the customer, know the products. Know as much as humanly possible because you are going to be on more business savvy than law savvy. That's the only way to survive, I think, personally. In-house is you need to be a business person first and a lawyer second. 
So if you don't know the company, that's really a disadvantage to everyone. That's definitely something that I think is is quite a big realization, right? For a lot of lawyers who are used to thinking about things quite black and white, looking at precedents, and then now having to have that mindset shift into being business first, legal precedent and jargon second. So that's a really, really great, you know, sort of realization for a lot of expiring in-house counsels out there. But what are some other big takeaways that you have learned through your time as Etsy's very first attorney and number 17th employee at that time? Yeah, so I was there for over nine years. I was a 17th employee, first lawyer. I helped to grow out the legal team. I helped to take the company public. I mean, I the company was very different when I left than when I began. Some of the takeaways are that you could take certain risks when you're at a smaller company that you just can't take when you're at a publicly traded company or a bigger company. And I think lawyers like us, sometimes we're a little risk averse, right? Something comes on us, we're like, ah, things are going to happen, bad things. But you have to turn that part of your brain off and say like, actually, what's the reality here? What are the chances that this terrible thing is actually going to happen? And it could be pretty slim to nut. So you can take risks when you're at a smaller company. That's not necessarily as true when it's at a bigger company at a publicly traded company. You need to really balance the risk portfolio with what the company is looking for. What are some of the goals? So that it's really evolving your skill sets and it's evolving your way of giving legal advice as the company evolves. Sarah, I'm really curious to know that as you pitched yourself, flew yourself to speak to the CEO and, you know, basically gave him the interview that possibly he didn't even expect. What was the conversation that went down with him that made him realize that he needs you on his team? I'm just a good lawyer. Very <laughs> convincing. Um, I basically talked to him about some of the issues that I spotted in some of the policies. I actually redlined them and I brought them like, on a piece of paper. I asked him about like legal issues that they were having. He pointed at some cease and desist letters that he had. And I said, I will take those off of your plate. I will deal with them. I talked to him about how I thought that there were probably some contracts that needed negotiating, some employee matters. I was basically saying to him, hey, do you have worries? Give them to me. I will make your life easier. I will make it so that you can grow this company. And P.S., I understand this company. I understand your community. I understand the law. So I'm a really great partner to you so that you can do what's best for you. And I will take some of the issues off of your plate. Wow. And there and then he gave you the job. Yeah, got my job. <laughs> you basically were able to identify his pain point and kind of tell him what you're able to solve. I think it's definitely also because you were a seller there. And so you understood the pain points that sellers like yourself, creative artists who are trying to make a business from Etsy were experiencing. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like I knew the company. I was a buyer there. I was a seller there. I'm part of the community. And I'm a lawyer. So it wasn't that I was reading his mind. I was, you know, anticipating some of the problems that could happen down the road. And I was saying, like, I'm here to help so that those bumps are a little bit more smooth so that you can build the company that you want to build. Let's put the foundation in place. And to this day, sometimes I'm like looking on Etsy and I still see my little breadcrumbs. I'm like, I built that. No one knows. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it just makes me wonder, Sarah, if you've always had this bias to action um, as a child, even, you know, is that something that was very natural to you to just really take an opportunity by its head and kind of just go for it? I think that's the artist, right? I'm not afraid of failure because I've seen failure with my eyes and I'm okay with it. I also am not the kind of person who's like super embarrassed by things. Like 
if things don't go well, they don't go well. Like you have to try. And when I had this idea to fly myself, I was living in Rochester, New York. I had this job at a law firm to fly myself from Rochester, New York to New York City and basically just show up and say, you should hire me. There was no job description. There was no nothing. My friends thought I was a little bit wacky, but why not? Like I, you know, I didn't have a family. I didn't have a mortgage. Like, why not? What's the risk I'm really taking here? It's like a weekend out of my life, a couple hundred dollars to fly over there. Why not? And I think a lot of lawyers are just too in their heads and too scared of things that could go wrong when maybe there's something that could go right. It's really something there about learning to take risk, like what you did, just be having the bias to action like you already spoke about. So Sarah, after around nine years at Etsy, you later joined Room, which is a US-based used car retailer and basically an e-commerce company. And you joined them as their first general counsel and thereafter took on various roles on the board and eventually landed your role as an adjunct professor at NYU teaching media law. And that's quite a turn also from your initial role from private practice into Etsy as a startup and then later on to um, teaching at NYU. So what's something that you can share with our audience in terms of the decision-making skills and process that you had as you moved your career forward and created opportunities for yourself? So at a certain point in time, I think a lot of people, especially a lot of lawyers in-house start thinking about board work, right? Like I think people want to join boards because it's just so shiny. It's so cool. Um, you're at the top, you're making decisions, but other people are like implementing those decisions. It seems like power and money and like, who doesn't want that? So I wanted that. So I started thinking about what kind of boards I would want to join. And I started pitching myself and going to conferences and chatting with people. And I eventually um, got on a couple boards. But I think along the same, and again, I reached out to them. No one was coming to me and tapping me on the shoulder and saying, hey, Sarah, we, we noticed that you're keeping your head down and you're doing really good, quiet work. Will you join our board? No, I told a lot of people I wanted to be on a board. One person I told, she eventually connected me with someone else who put me on her board. Like it, it's a process, right? And you can't be shy about your wants and your desires and be really, you know, open about it because you never know who's going to know somebody. So along those same lines, that's how I got my job at NYU teaching media law. I thought to myself, I have so many skills I've given. I, I do public speaking. I do some inspirational talks. I talk about intellectual property, um, user-generated content, e-commerce, the internet, all sorts of things. I would love to teach. So I started this Google Doc as one does when you have an idea. I don't know if anyone else does this. And I just like links I put in there, like all these ideas of teaching a class, what would that look like? And it was really messy. But every time I had an idea of a teaching thing, I would shove it in this Google Doc. So like maybe a year and a half ago, I was having lunch with one of my really good friends who's also an attorney as, and she's been in-house for a long time. And we were talking about career aspirations and she agreed that she also wanted to be a professor at some point. She's fantastic. Her name is Jennifer Chung. And I said, I have this crazy Google doc. <laughs> you know, I've been like sort of preparing for this for a long time. And we put together a two page pitch. I said, we got to do this fast. It can't be long. It can't be a big thing. Let's take two weeks. Let's put together a really quick pitch. And we're going to send it to anyone we know who might be connected with some colleges and law schools and things like that. So we sent it out to a bunch of law schools because our idea was maybe we would teach in law school because that makes most, most sense. Well, no one 
no one was really biting. Like, you know, law schools weren't really into this idea of Sarah, who has <laughs> basically no teaching expertise teaching. But then one thing led to another, and I heard that there was this job opening at NYU. And so we spoke with NYU, and it, this is for graduate level engineering students. And they're required to take a media law class. And so we started the conversations with NYU. And because of our pitch and because we had like chatted with each other and like leaning on my messy Google Docs, we started the interview process and we got the job there. I'm really hearing a common thread in your different, you know, career milestones, right? From the time that you pitched yourself at Etsy and then, you know, how you got on boards and even landing the adjunct professor role. It was a lot of reaching out proactively and not being shy about your wants and desires. And in, in essence, being quite strategic about it as well. Did you ever have fears, you know, was imposter syndrome ever a thing that you experienced? Every day of my life, like every single day, like I think the first day I was up there talking to these amazing, amazing students at NYU, you're paying a lot of money to be at NYU and I'm sweating, right? But then you have to think to yourself, absolutely not. I deserve to be here. I worked really hard and I have a lot to teach these students um, and I'm there fortunate to have me. So I think imposter syndrome is always in our heads, especially as women, especially women in the law and these careers that are, you know, we get a certificate and they're like, now you are given permission to practice. No one gave me permission to be a professor. Like I had to give myself permission. We have to give ourselves permission to be on boards, to be pushing ourselves forward the way I have. So yeah, imposter syndrome is always in my head and it's just my job to quiet it. I love that. Very that, that felt very reassuring and empowering at the same time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, did anyone give you permission to start your podcast? Absolutely no. No, no it was imposter like, syndrome. <laughs> sometimes, you know? sometimes. But like you said, yeah. you know, it's it's our job to quieten it or not. That could be the very thing that stands in our own way. Or find right. a way to make it or find a way to make imposter syndrome our friend. Uh, well, if you find a way to make imposter syndrome your friend, like let me know because that girl is annoying to me. She's like, like I'm like, quiet, lady, go away. <laughs> yeah, you know, because because the thing is, I don't want people to feel like imposter syndrome is just like causing them to pause and wait until perfection. And I think us as lawyers, especially, we're so we're risk averse. We need everything to be perfect. Ah, I have a typo. Ah, like you know, double space instead of one space. Like. The partner's going to yell at me. Well, how much extra time is that going to take when like just experiment and see what happens, right? Like I think there are times that things have to be as perfect as possible. But with your career, I think we can take some chances that maybe we're not as comfortable taking as lawyers. Mm, really love that, right? It, it's progress over perfection. And, you know, on the note of taking chances, we'd love to hear about your playwriting journey. We know your play, Dirty Little Secrets. It was out in April. Massive congratulations to you on that. Um, yeah. You know, it's a play based on true startup lawyer stories. So very, very saucy right there. We'd love to hear what prompted you to take the leap into playwriting. Woo! Okay. So now we're like throwing a whole wrench in the situation. All My career all made sense until you brought up the playwriting. It all made sense. <laughs> You know, when the Me Too movement hit, we're going to get real right here. When the Me Too movement hit, I felt like a punch to my gut. And I started thinking, I'm at the board meetings. I'm helping make these decisions. Me as a lawyer, 
how many lawyers out there have these stories that we're not telling because we can't tell them because of attorney-client privilege? What has happened? Why are we not looking into our broken legal systems and the lawyers that are involved? So I realized that there's so many stories through my time at Etsy, through my time at Room, through my time hanging out with other lawyers in dark bars near bright conference rooms. We're telling each other all these stories and we're like leaning on each other and we're like a community crying together, laughing together, sharing these stories that we can't really share with anyone else. We are privileged and we are voiceless. We cannot tell these stories. So I love theater. I live in New York City. I see as many Broadway shows as humanly possible. And I thought it would be really interesting to collect these stories anonymously so that we break attorney-client privilege, make sure that any you know identifying information is redacted out so the lawyers are comfortable, and we hire actors to pretend that they are lawyers and to tell these stories on a stage. Because now we can tell the stories in a way we couldn't tell them before. So in 2019, my buddy Michael Weinberg and I had this idea together. We collected a bunch of stories. We wrote a bunch of monologues. We hired a bunch of actors. It was like an open mic night for lawyers telling their stories. But they weren't really lawyers. They're they're actors playing lawyers. And it sold out. And it was called Legal Madness. It was before the pandemic. And it was amazing. But it was basically like stand-up comedy lawyers telling stories. Well, the pandemic hit. And I thought, I I really want to push myself into the theatrical world. What can I do? And so I took a playwright class. I took a producing class online. I started writing and writing and writing. And I collected even more stories from startup lawyers. Stories you would not even believe. And that's how Dirty Legal Secrets was born. So I wrote the play and I found an amazing team. I have an amazing producer and we have experimented. We put this on at a a bunch of different ways. Jeff Daniels, a theater in Michigan, did a fully rehearsed reading of my show. I keep applying to uh, different theatrical opportunities. Most of the time I get rejected. Some of the times I don't. And it's been a really long process since 2019 to now, but things are happening and we'll see what's next for Dirty Legal Secrets. That's so, that's really, really exciting, actually. And I'm just curious, I assume this is not something that is common in the world of, you know, law meets art meets law. Has it, has it been controversial in any way? Has anyone said, oh, no, you can't be revealing the, the tricks of the trade or anything like that? What's the response been? Well, the response has been really positive. The response has been, um, people keep giving me stories. And if you go to dirtylegal.com, there is an anonymous form that you can fill out and give me stories. Or you can give me your phone number and I'll talk to you on the phone. People keep giving me sp- stories. People love the stories. I think the controversy is that I'm doing something that is so incredibly difficult when I could be doing something a little easier. With all due respect, podcasts are maybe a little easier than theater. Um, I could, you know, hire an actor and have them do, you know, one of the monologues on a podcast. I have everything written down. I could write a book. I could do articles, a series of blog posts. There are ways to use this content that would be more immediate than theater. However, I love theater. And there's something about being together in an audience and feeling the like gasps and the laughter. So I'm continuing to push theater. That's where 
the controversy has been. People have said to me, Sarah, what the heck? I want to know these stories. Could you put them on a blog? What's with theater? We had our performances in Syracuse, New York. I can't get to Syracuse, New York, Sarah. Can you please just like make this easier on us? Not yet. Well, we'll have, you know, a tour that's going to come to all your cities (laughs) eventually. And bring but, them to Malaysia um, too. Our lawyers. Malaysia, a worldwide tour. It's going to be like the Taylor Swift era situation, except oh, yeah. more, way more lawyers. I think it'll be worth it. I really do. Well, We're we, manifesting that for you. Exactly. Yes. And we already yeah. know, Sarah, that you're someone who does not shy away from challenges. And, you know, with theater and playwriting being even more difficult than podcasting you're absolutely right Maybe. all the more you are going to be the one that you know supercharges and um spearheads this so we're we're, we're looking forward for you to bring dirty le- legal secrets even to malaysia because i can only imagine our lawyer colleagues would have lots and lots of juicy dirty legal secrets for you too if anyone listening has dirty legal secrets that they want to share with me. I want the best stuff. Even if you're not sure if it's that good, I even half stories. Give me a half of a story. Give me a sentence. I've had people give me one sentence that has blown my mind and I put it on the stage. So send them to me, dirtylegalsecrets.com. Alternatively, and I think it's also really important for people to understand that they should ask for very specific things because then people can get them to them. So I would love your stories. And I also would love if anyone has contacts in the theater world, especially smaller theaters that put on new plays or experimental plays that are taking chances on something, you know, social justice based, feminist based, something like what I am making. It's, and it's funny. It's a funny play. Love it. So if you're anyone out there that's in that space and wants to holla at Sarah, you know how to reach her. But I love what you say about, you know, when you're asking for help, always be specific. Um, And it just reminded me, you know, Janice and I, when we had a very intimate first community meetup two weeks ago, celebrating, you know, our second birthday. And someone asked us a very kind question to say, how can we support you as like, you know, local podcasters? And it was our opportunity to be really specific about the ask. And it made us realize like, wow, some people want to help, but they don't know how to. So unless you make it easy and make it clear on them, then we won't really know how to get that help. So I love that. That's it. That's the talking point exactly there. That's my entire career summarized. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Be as specific as possible because people want to help you. I literally was standing in line next to a woman once and we were just chit chatting about something like we were going to theater. So we're talking about theater. And then I mentioned my play and I told her, like, I'm looking for smaller theaters. And she said, I have a friend in a a theater in Alabama. I'm going to put you in touch with her. People want to help. You need to be as specific as possible. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I wrote a play. I don't know. What do you think? Like, I'm putting it on her. No, I know exactly what I want. And if I don't know exactly what I want, I haven't done enough work on myself to get there. It is your job to figure out what you want and to be very specific about it. I love that. I love that. And on that note on career advice, Sarah, we know that you've been giving so many out-of-the-box creative career advice you know, this is something we've heard you say that if you love your job or even if you don't love your job, seriously consider interviewing for other roles at least once a year. Now, why is this something that you advocate for? Yes. So someone who is an amazing person told me that once and I was deep in Etsy. It must have been like a couple years in Etsy. Dream job. 
dream everything, love, love, love my job. And when he said that to me, he said, hey, Sarah, just have you been interviewing other places? Oh my gosh, am I being fired? Oh my gosh, am I doing a terrible job? What is happening? Why are you suggesting that? And he explained it to me and it's such a smart idea. Interviewing is a skill. Interviewing is a skill that you can lose, right? You need to know your worth. And sometimes, even if you absolutely, absolutely love your job, things happen, right? There could be something that goes on in the stock market. There could be something that goes on in the world, like things pivot. Your whole team could be laid off. Nothing to do with you, right? But having this skill and consistently interviewing so that you can lean on that when it's necessary, I think is really valuable advice, especially to people who haven't interviewed or or been at a company for a while. When I published that article, I had so many people reach out to me telling me horror stories about how they all of a sudden found themselves in a toxic environment and knew they had an interview and they flubbed it. They flubbed it and it didn't go well. They said, I wish that I had like had this muscle that I kept exercising this interview muscle over and over and over again. Because when you're interviewing with for a job and you already have a job that you like, you can relax and you can, you know, just, you never know how it's going to go, right? You're not as pressure filled. But when you get to the situation where, oh my gosh, I need a new job, like my life depends on it. There's so much pressure and it's good to know that you've exercised that muscle. And I think it's clearly manifested in the different opportunities that you have, you know, personally experienced as well. And we also want to say, you know, your journey going from in private practice first and then in-house and startups and then higher education and then now in a world of entertainment and playwriting, it truly showcases the potential for lawyers and young professionals, we will say, to be very versatile, to be open, to put themselves out there and explore various career paths. But we also want to hear more from you on, you know, what are some other actionable advice that you can share with our fellow young professionals who are keen to explore alternative career paths, but perhaps are feeling unsure or, or a little bit afraid? So where does your fear come from? And try to figure that out. Um, but also thinking about alternative career paths, I, I like to say, like, be the shark. So if you are really interested in an area of law or a specific community, go to where that community is. So if you're interested in fashion, go to a fashion show. If you're, if you're interested in podcasting, go to a podcasting convention, right? You'll be the only lawyer in the room, probably. And you're going to learn from all of these people. So really go to where your interests lie. I love art. So I'm constantly, you know, taking art classes and I'm meeting amazing, amazing people in these art classes. So don't just feel like, oh, I'm a lawyer. I should only go to legal conferences. I should only be around lawyers. Go be around other people. There are some cool people out there. And you never know. If you start getting your expertise in a specific area of law, you might be able to open up your own firm. And these are your clients. And you understand your clients and you understand their hopes and their dreams and their concerns. And you can add value to that. I love this intersection that you're really bringing into the podcast, even as we chat with you on your love for both the creative space and legal. And, you know, I see that that parallel between what Janice and I are doing as well through podcasting. Yes. Sarah, you know, finally, as you see your creative journey continue to evolve, what are some new artistic challenges or even legal frontiers that you aspire to conquer? I like teaching. I like speaking. I like continuing 
uh, working on my play. I'm talking to somebody right now about potentially turning some of my stories into a sitcom. So this might go on TV, but they're, they're, this thing has become pretty awesome. And, you know, as, I guess so, right? It's all about continuing to, to move forward, right? And I hear no a lot. I'm constantly, constantly applying for things and getting turned down. And I think all of us have to realize that like this happens, right? I think in law, we're so used to being perfect and being like, oh my God, I lost the case. Like my life is over. No, 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 no. When you're dueling with your career, you can take these chances and keep getting rejected. No one's talking about all the times I got rejected, but let me tell you a lot, a lot. While we're having this conversation, literally I was reaching out to tons of law schools and they were like, we don't, we don't need someone like you. And it would be easy for me to be like, well, I tried five times and that didn't work out, but maybe the six. Um, as for legal frontiers, obviously we're all talking about AI. AI is huge. Okay. If anyone is ignoring AI, that is a problem. You need to look into it. Period. Look into it. Keep on top of what is happening. The world is changing. The legal world is changing. And we as young people, as new lawyers, as older lawyers, we need to just embrace it and understand it, even if we do not like it, even if it's way easier to be like, back in the day, no, no, the world is changing and it's up to us to like understand where do we fit in. I love it. And there's so much in there, you know, in this conversation alone, we have gone from potential sitcom creation. I mean, we could be <laughs> talking about a new suit and, you know, we'll check back with you in about a year's time and we'll... We are very <laughs> sure, you know, greater fun. <laughs> no problem. We'll have suits for the year. People love legal shows on TV. Like we there's like a lot of money in yeah. legal shows on TV. So I have been approached by some people being, basically being like, Sarah, why are you doing theater? You should be doing TV. Okay. One thing at a time. Never say never, right? Right. Exactly. And as we come to a wrap, a question that we'd always like to end on um, and we'd love to hear your answer to this question, uh, which is what is something that you would like to explore more of? I would like to explore more theater. I try to see as much theater as humanly possible, but it is not enough. I am blown away with what is on the stage. And I would love anyone listening to your podcast to go to theater, go to regional theater. The theaters are struggling right now. You don't have to see my show. Go see someone else's show. It's something about being in the audience with a ton of people laughing together, crying together. What a beautiful, wonderful thing. And you're, you'll be able to explore points of view that you might not have been able to explore before. So go to theater. That's our next date friendship activity, Janice. And um, just remembering the wisdom from Sarah while we are enjoying that theater show. And on that final note, we just want to ask if you have any final words of Wisdom and advice to our audience, which comprise of both young professionals, lawyers, aspiring lawyers who are wishing to get out of the profession or just anyone at all. What would be your final words of wisdom to them? It's hard out there. You got this. Love it. Short and sweet, but so, so good as well. So thank you so much again, Sarah. And, you know, today, just to sum up some of the key takeaways that we have taken from our conversation, I think you really gave a good reminder on thinking about what could go right, not being shy about our wants and desires and to just put ourselves out there, silent the voices of imposter syndrome, be very, very specific about our ask. And on the very final point, you know, even if we love our job, things could happen, lots of pivots in life could come about. 
interview consistently so you can lean on that. So thank you so much once again, Sarah. I've learned so much from you on this really, really colorful conversation today. Thank you. If you stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you. So you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast. New episodes for Explore This drops every alternate Mondays at 8pm. See you then!